It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 209 for September 12th, 2010. Recorded September 10th. When you're waiting for somebody to arrive at the airport so you can pick them up, it's hard to know when to leave for the airport. You don't want to arrive at the airport only to find that the flight has been delayed for three hours or sent to Poughkeepsie. But if you wait until they call to say the flight has landed, you'll keep them waiting. Airlines provide some limited notifications now, but an even better solution is real-time flight monitoring. Of three services I tried recently, one seemed to be a clear winner. The younger daughter Katie returned recently from a trip to Florida, and I watched as her plane took off from Orlando. When the plane was over Kentucky and approaching Ohio, I left for the airport, and as I was approaching the airport, my phone rang. Katie reported she was at the airport and outside. See you in less than five minutes, I said. That's the way it should be. When she was flying to Florida, I used three flight tracking services. Since then, I have bookmarked one of them. The services were FlightView, FlightAware, and FlightStats. I started all three of the monitoring services before the flight had even begun boarding. In fact, before the plane had even arrived at Port Columbus. You'll find the pictures to go along with this story at the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. FlightView starts with a basic information page, and it said that it will provide a real-time view once the plane is in the air. FlightAware takes a slightly different approach. It knew that the flight I wanted to monitor was a continuation of a flight from Chicago's Midway Airport, so it showed me the inbound progress of the flight. That was helpful. The initial flight stats display was pretty basic. It provided the least information. Nine minutes after departure, FlightAware showed the plane still heading west at 10,000 feet, speed 221 knots, on its way to 29,000 feet and a cruising speed of 439 knots. What's this with knots? At the same time, flight stats showed 254 miles per hour. That's a better measurement for non-pilots. And it showed the plane to be at 10,100 feet. The slight difference in altitude could be explained by the slight time difference between when I captured one screenshot and the next. As far as I could tell, FlightView thought the plane was still on the ground. What I found later is that there is a button further down on the screen, actually off the screen, that would launch a real-time view. It doesn't happen automatically. So the button to launch the viewer really needs to be at the top of the page. I tried refreshing the flight view page, and the browser showed me a small map. It wasn't possible to zoom in on the map, so the small map was the best resolution that flight view was going to provide, it looked like, at that time. In addition to allowing the user to zoom in on the map, FlightAware also provides several various views. The standard view is the flight plan shown in green. You can also choose an Earth view that combines the plane's flight path, current position, and planned position with a satellite view of the ground. And a third view overlays the plane's position on a standard flight map. If you're a pilot, you'll probably like this. As for flight stats, 
Its map is also one that the user can zoom, and it's probably the best map of the group. You'll see a picture on the TechBinder Worldwide website of the plane about to fly over greater metropolitan Ironton, and FlightStats provides a lot of information about the flight, too. A graph shows the plane's speed and altitude, and a chart records time, position, orientation, altitude, ground speed, and the facility that's in control of the aircraft. After the flight had been in the air for an hour and should have been halfway to Orlando, FlightView seemed to still think it was over Ohio. I still hadn't discovered the button that would launch the real-time view. FlightAware at this point was providing the most information about the flight. Flight stats, though, provided the best map for those of us who aren't pilots. The map is easy to understand because it looks a lot like what you'd find in a standard atlas. It was about this time that I discovered the button to launch the real-time view in FlightView. A new browser window opened, and, well, that's it. Nothing ever appeared on the screen. It was about that time I gave up on FlightView. As the plane approached Orlando, I zoomed in on FlightAware's aviation sectional map, and the plane flew right off the map. (laughs) Even the best service isn't perfect. So the bottom line, I looked at three services, found two winners. The overall winner for me is FlightAware, but FlightStats is a very close second, and it's the better choice if you're at all map-challenged. FlightView seems to offer the worst origination and weakest feature set, so I really can't recommend it. You'll find links to FlightAware with four cats, FlightStats with four cats, and FlightView with one cat on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Last week, TechBiter Worldwide had the first of three segments with her geekiness and Marie Concepcion. And this week, we'll continue with the second segment. We were talking about InDesign and the improvements Adobe made in the CS5 version of the application. We talked about Adobe InDesign and Adobe's willingness to listen and about the loser programs, such as Ventura Publisher and Frame. There was a time several years ago when I wrote a review of one of the early CS versions. In fact, it may have been just CS. And I I said something like InDesign is on track to be the best publication design application or something like that. But then I wondered, why can't it do the things that Ventura Publisher has done for a decade? Oh, yes. And that caught the attention. (laughs) I hear that so often. (laughs) (laughs) That caught the attention of Will Isley, Ah, who who invited me to Seattle and said, would you come out and talk to us about that? So Ah. uh, I I did, and that really gave me a very good impression of of Adobe, for one thing, that, you know, they're obviously very willing to listen. Aren't they? uh, It's amazing, yes take the ideas that, that they can get and develop them. And one of the things I said was actually, by today's standards, is a pretty darn silly thing, but one of the things I really pushed was the ability from Ventura to create a multi-column headline. To do that oh. in to do that in InDesign was difficult. You had to create a frame and put the text in the frame, and if anything moved, mm. you had to move the whole thing around. It was just a huge mess. And, and they listened and took notes, and oh. like five years later, there it is. <laughs> so you're Mr. Span Columns. <laughs> I'm bowing down to you. But they did me one better. In addition to that, they did the thing that allows you to take one column and make it into multiple little columns for like a short short set of bullets, which I never even thought of. And this is really cool. That's great. That's wonderful. I think they should name that after you. (laughs) I got to think I'm not the only person who suggested (laughs) that. (laughs) 
you're, I, I know that you're not. You know, and for me, I don't know why, but that spam column never really, you know, struck my nerve. I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. But whenever I demo that in front of people, whenever I teach it in a seminar or during a class, the audience just goes insane. Whoa! Oh my God, that's fantastic! Look at that! You know, it takes I guess us right like back to about eighty-seven. <laughs> I heard this. I heard what you're saying. <laughs> um, from so many Ventura users, like, oh, come, I can't do this. We were able to do that in Ventura since 1993, you know. And I was doing a, some training last year in D.C. at a company that was moving from Ventura to InDesign and InCopy. And they were still using Ventura when I went there to do the training. And I said, I had never actually seen this program in action. And I and they, they do a journal, a very respected scholarly journal out there in D.C., so let me see it. And I, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. She's like, look at how fast she can quickly spit out pages with different masters. And she wasn't, you know, no dragging and dropping involved, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pretty impressed. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, okay. that's that's one of the shames of uh, – actually, they don't like the term desktop publishing, but I'm going yeah. to use that. That that application never caught on. And the other shame is that Adobe never bought it. On one hand, you have the cool drag and drop, you know, very flexible – design programs like Quark and PageMaker and InDesign. Mm-hmm. And then the other hand, you have all the structured, automated, very fast programs like Ventura and FrameMaker. Yes. And uh, I, you know, I've always said that there is no bitterer student than somebody who used to use FrameMaker and being taught InDesign. They're very bitter. It's a very tough class mm-hmm. to teach. I'll bet it is. I've they done have... it a few times, and they just like they're grinding their teeth. You know, are you telling me that we need to do this for every page, you know, that kind of thing? Like they yes. can't get over like there's no cross-references, you know. What? This is the main program? This is the one they've been telling us about that we should be moving to for years? And you can't even do cross-references? That was, you know, before CS4. And I was like, sorry, my gosh, I didn't know it was such a big deal. Still, I'm sure some loyal yeah. users of that program out there, but it's uh, if you as you as we move into uh, Windows 7, it's not supported. It will not run properly under Windows mm-hmm. 7. It, it, we're just at the we're, we're at the point where it's not going to be around anymore. So, so who is is it? Corel is that Ventura? Ventura is owned right now by Corel. It, oh, it was originally just an individual company. It was acquired by Xerox. Uh, and Xerox, unfortunately, had not a clue what to do with it or how to market it. Wow. Um, and it almost died in Xerox's hands. They spun it mm-hmm. off as a separate company, and it was within a couple of weeks of dying when Corel stepped in and bought it. Mm. But then Corel never did anything with it either, so it's just been the original bad luck kid. Mm. Well, let's, let's uh, talk about some of the things that you've encountered in, in dealing with Adobe and their willingness to uh, to step in and really go beyond what's expected of them uh, in terms of, of listening to customers. I think I referred to them as being humble at one point, and I mean that mm-hmm. in the very best of all possible ways, is they don't get all wrapped up in their own stuff. They don't necessarily believe that their way is the one and only way to do things. They are willing to listen, and they're, you know, they're willing to, to, to take suggestions from wherever they come. And I would agree with um, everything that you said and, and more than that. I, I, in my business as a trainer, I usually don't have any dealings with the software companies themselves in the software that I teach. But since I became involved with InDesign rather than teaching Quark Express so much uh, about maybe four or five years ago, that I've come to realize that Adobe is um, quite unlike most other software companies. And I've also gotten a really good education on what it's like to be a major software company. I mean, it, it still shocks me that... Like you said, 
Bill, that you know you suggested something five years ago and finally came out is that that's sort of how they work. You know, it's very difficult for a company of that size to like take a suggestion now and have a new version come out in the six months. And that, you know, when they're working on, just like other software companies, by the time that they have released an upcoming, uh, a new version, they are already almost finished with the next version. I mean, that's how far ahead they have to work. And then you imagine them working with all these other programs that have to be released together at the same time. You know, so you can't, I remember before they were sweet and Illustrator would come out with a new version. It was fantastic. Maybe a few months later, there'd be a new version of Photoshop, you know. But so the teams didn't have to like all be synchronized swimmers. They could they could get the job done in the time they had allotted, in time they gave themselves. And if they needed more time, they could do it in more time. But when they moved to the suite, it's like Illustrator might need a couple more months to finish everything that they need to do, but they don't have two more months, so they have to remove some of those features. They have to jettison them and and hope hope that they can get them in the next version. So that's a lot of pressure, I think. Oh, absolutely. That's, I think, one of the things that most people outside the industry don't understand, that uh, that you've got this schedule and that all the things have to come together. And ready or not, it's it's essentially got a ship on a uh, at a particular time. But nonetheless, each of these programs has their own team, and then there are people who are in charge of all the programs, and they are extremely open, especially the InDesign team. I say I would say also Photoshop and Illustrator to some extent, but I just don't have that many dealings with them. But you know, like John Knack, the I think he's head of Photoshop. He's the blogger. He probably posts about 30 new posts a day. He's very open. He's constantly talking with the end, with the end users and replying to comments. But the InDesign team themselves, I mean, like I know the email addresses of a lot of the people there, and they have also the engineers. The people who actually work on stuff, they speak at industry seminars. So, I mean, I was, I remember I was so excited a couple years ago at an InDesign seminar that we had up in Seattle at the Adobe campus. I was um, teamed up with one of the Adobe engineers to introduce them and sort of guide the the presentation. And his name was uh, Eric Meninga, and he invented the paragraph composer. It's it's like the the supreme typographical engine in InDesign that's unique to InDesign, and I know personally many huge companies have moved to InDesign just so they could get that paragraph composer. Mm -hmm. There's no other layout program that offers that. And it's uh, for the benefit of the listeners, it's uh, when you edit text in InDesign, you know how, like in Word, if you start editing a line, sometimes that line may break differently, and so the subsequent lines in the paragraph might have little cascade effect, and they might have to break differently too, right? And then they'd stop at the end of the paragraph. But never, if you're editing a line, would lines above that line in the same paragraph, would they ever change? That's because they're using a single-line composer. But that's not how InDesign works by default. It could work that way if you wanted to, but not by default. Hardly anybody uses that single-line composer. They use the paragraph composer. Every time you make a single edit, make a word bold, delete a space, it looks at your rules for how many hyphens in a row there should be, if hyphenation is allowed, what your optimum spacing is between characters and words, and it resets the entire paragraph to get better line breaks. And it is remarkable to watch that work. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yes. So that means it's a lot less work to make beautiful-looking type. And this guy sitting next to me invented it. Yeah. I couldn't get over it. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, and I did the, you know, hyphenation algorithm, too. Or it's like just like these main essential parts came out of this guy's brain. Well, I'm sure, you know, he worked with a team or whatever, but he was he was the lead. He told us fascinating things about the development of that of that uh, paragraph composer and and how um, the paragraph composer, like if you ever switch from the paragraph composer to the single line composer, sometimes the paragraph just sort of explodes. It's like all the lines re-break. 
because it's no longer following the paragraph composition rules. Mm-hmm. He said it's because when you use the paragraph composer, it sort of cheats a little bit here, cheats a little bit there. It's sort of like just to make everything look nice, you know, it'll squeeze stuff in there, squeeze stuff in there. When you use the single line composer, all that is shot and it just uses, just breaks every line based on its own line. And uh, so now when I teach it, I liken the paragraph composer to a girdle that keeps everything nice and smooth. <laughs> and if you turn it to the single line composer, it's like ripping that girdle off. And who knows where the heck things are going to end up. So just wow. keep that girdle on. People. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much to her geekiness and Marie Concepcion. We'll have one more segment next week. And if you'd like more information about InDesign, you can see the previous program. There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And the final part of this series, which will include, finally, the TechBiter cat rating and a video that shows some of my favorite InDesign features, that'll be up next week. The bottom line right now is, oh, wow, but you just really, you'll have to wait for the rating. Sorry. In short circuits, early this week, Google swapped out its logo for some colored balls that arranged themselves to say Google, but instantly scattered as the mouse cursor approached. It was the talk of the Internet and even made it to some or maybe many or most or all of the evening news programs, which probably says something about news these days. In any event, the PR stunt did what a PR stunt is supposed to do. It got people to look and talk. Then, a couple of days later, Google introduced Google Instant. Instead of waiting for you to type your entire search string and press Enter, Google now starts making suggestions and showing ads as soon as you type the first letter. According to Google, people type slowly, just three to four characters per second, but they read quickly. So if the search engine can start showing results sooner, your search may take less time. How much less time? According to Google, the time savings will be two to five seconds. If you conduct a lot of searches every day, you might save a whopping two or three minutes. Why, this is utterly game-changing. The consequences are unfathomable. Millions of people saving a few minutes per day will add up to... All right, maybe not so much. Actually, Google did suggest that line of nonsense. I'm going to quote Google's news release. If everyone uses Google Instant globally, we estimate this will save more than 3.5 billion seconds a day. That's 11 hours saved every second. Come on. But do consider it this way. Any time spent waiting on a computer is wasted. It may be only 2, 3, 4, or 5 seconds, but you're not waiting. At least you're not waiting unless you use an antique browser or you live in the wrong country. The new feature depends on capabilities that are built into modern browsers. So Google Instant works only with Chrome, version 5 or later, Firefox, version 3 or later, Safari, version 5 or later, and Internet Explorer, version 8 or later. And it works only in the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Russia. Does it seem that there was a country missing there? Why was Canada omitted? Or does Google consider Canada to be part of the U.S.? And although I can, and should, and did, make fun of some of the high school sophomore excitement Google infuses into its announcements, I do have to tell you that Google Instant is a great new feature. 
As usual, Google is several steps ahead of just about everybody else. Here's how it works. Let's assume I want to find out something about TechBiter. So I've gone to Google. And you can see the images of this section on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The instant I type a T, I am offered Target, Ticketmaster, Twitter, and Travelocity, along with 344 million other results. Once I have TE entered, Google changes the offerings to Tetris, Telhio, Tecumseh, and texts from last night. At Tech, T-E-C, the suggestions are Tecumseh, Tecumseh Outdoor Drama, Tech Columbus, and Tech Net. So then I added the H and had Tech. Tech Bargains, Tech Bridge, Tech Biter, and Tech Bright. Aha! There it was, Tech Biter. When I click on Tech Biter, exactly what I'm looking for is right there on the screen. And yes, if you don't like the new feature because you are change-averse, you can turn it off. According to Symantec, more than two-thirds of Internet users and three-fourths of U.S. Internet users have been the victims of Internet crime. Really? Have you ever been victimized by Internet crime? Do you know other people who have been victims of Internet crime? Something about these features just doesn't seem right. I'm now quoting a semantic news release that describes a study of 7,000 web users. By definition, this would seem to leave out email fraud, which I would consider far more prevalent. In any event, Symantec says, and I quote, two-thirds, 65%, of Internet users globally and almost three-quarters, 73%, of U.S. web surfers have fallen victim to cyber crimes, including computer viruses, online credit card fraud, and identity theft. As the most victimized nations, America ranks third after China at 83% and Brazil and India tying at 76%. Close quote. The survey goes on to provide percentages for the number of people who are angry, 58%, annoyed, 51%, or feel cheated, 40%. Okay, I have to wonder, is this 73% of U.S. web users a group that has been victimized this year? Since the Internet became available to average folks, or from some other date? The real point of the news release seems, not surprisingly, to promote Symantec Norton products. Quoting the news release once again, the best defense against cybercrime and the best way to protect yourself is to surf the Internet with up-to-date comprehensive security software such as Norton Internet Security 2011, which was launched today. Quoting the news release. See a little manipulation there? I have endorsed Norton Internet Security as the surprising winner. I did that when I evaluated the applications about a year ago. I'm still using it. I still like it. But this survey seems just to be over the top, far over the top. How is crime defined, for example? There are lots of viruses out there. Some have a criminal intent, but many do not. How many people already use Symantec Norton products? And if 73% of web users have been victimized, what does this say about Norton products? Something just doesn't add up here. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.